Today, if you did not know, we join with hundreds of millions around the world rejoicing in our living, resurrected Lord. And there's a reason that people gather, not only because it's a Sunday, but to consider this specific Sunday, this Easter Sunday. It's because Easter Sunday morning holds forth for us great and glorious promises. I believe it would be fair to say that of all of the promises of Scripture, that today we reflect on what can only be considered to be the greatest and most glorious of all the promises. This is held true if you consider the totality of the New Testament. If you were a Christian in the early days seeking to bear witness to the gospel, what is the good news? You would mention nearly without fail the resurrection more than 100 times. The New Testament indicates that the hope of Christianity is this fact that we celebrate today. And so it's fitting It's fitting that Christians the world over and Christians Leon County over and some of us even beyond county bounds to celebrate with vibrant intentionality. Today, it is a fitting day to gather with God's people. Today is a fitting day to sing songs of new life. Today is a fitting day to greet one another with joy, with rehearsed greetings like he is risen and he is risen indeed. Today is a fitting day to bake and to make the best of foods, to lather on the pastels, and to meet the moment with gratitude. So I have a job this morning. I have a job that I delight in, that I am so grateful for. I'm going to add my voice to countless across the globe in the greatest of places, in the most amazing of cathedrals, down to the sweetest of grandmas who will explain the hope of Jesus coming out of the grave to her grandchildren. Every one of those voices along the way, faithful to the testimony of the early church that Jesus died a sinner's death, but the grave could not hold him. And that resurrection life is the great hope of Christianity. I want to add my voice. The prayer has been that I would add it faithfully. And in order to do this, I'm going to Consider together with you a portion of a sermon by a very, very famous Christian. In that way, I admit right at the outset that I am going to borrow from someone else who has already defended the resurrection. This sermon, I'll have you know, was recorded very carefully by someone who is bright, sharp, in fact, lived his life as a a physician. His name was Luke. The sermon preached by a very famous Christian named Peter. This sermon is especially important to us because it was delivered a very few short weeks after the actual resurrection of Jesus. In that way, the earth itself was still hot with the power of the resurrection. And it was on a particular day in Jerusalem On a weekend of of Pentecost, when hundreds of thousands have gathered into the city, that Peter found himself, and that's the interesting thing about this message, he found himself explaining the resurrection. As far as we know, he did not set out that morning when he woke up to deliver one of the most important and significant sermons of all time. Some of what he spoke was extemporaneous. I once listened to a 
an explanation, a series of interviews describing the great I Have a Dream speech by Martin Luther King Jr. And those who were close to him said the most amazing thing about that speech is that he was famously and consistently manuscript, manuscripted. He, he was down to the very word planned out in what he would say, except for that day. And that much of that particular talk was given with a kind of passion and extemporaneous style that perhaps is what Peter is living through, something like that here on this morning. The reason I know this is because he had been gathered, huddled in an upper room with his closest friends, waiting for the promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit. And they did not control when this would come or when this would happen. But there in the midst of their waiting and gathering, the Holy Spirit falls they, sound, they hear the sound of a mighty rushing wind. They look around and they see fire over their heads and they begin to speak. In this moment, the very huddled, small band of followers of Jesus burst out into the streets. The doors swing open and they begin to speak. And there in the midst of it, all of the gathered crowd heard them speak in their own languages. They made no sense, but they made perfect sense. You ever been crazy like that? You ever been so crazy it makes sense? Well, this band of Christians bursts out, sound of marching wind, speaking in tongues of fire, and they say, how do these Galileans, what are they? they're insane, but they make sense. I hear them in my accent. I hear them in my dialect. I hear them in my language. What is going on here? And it's in the midst of this odd circumstance that someone says, well, we got to explain it. And amongst the crowd, there are murmurings. And finally, someone pipes up and he says, I got an explanation for this. It's the explanation for most times when people stumble out of rooms together and start shouting into the air. Maybe you've seen it along college campuses year after year. They are clearly and utterly drunk. There's no other explanation. If you want to know how do you explain the odd circumstances of this moment, they must have drank too much. That room got a little crazy. It couldn't hold them anymore, so they burst into the streets. And it's in that moment that Peter says, that explanation won't do. I need to solve with an interpretive key what is happening here in our midst. And so he stands to speak. He's not content to let them live with a poor answer. And really, it's a no answer. You don't just chalk everything up to drunkenness. The way we explain everything away with COVID. I don't know. It's just... It's just COVID. And so he stands. And I'm going to begin reading in the 24th verse of Acts chapter 2. He's just said, you know this Jesus whom you crucified? Do you remember? Again, this is weeks ago. Do you remember the crucifixion of Jesus? He dies a sinner's death very publicly. Well, here's what he says in verse 24 of Acts chapter 2. This is the key to the odd circumstances. Peter says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. What a confident phrase. It was not possible for him to be held by it. Verse 25, for David says concerning him, now he's going to quote from the 16th Psalm, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. 
For you will, not, you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And now he comments on this psalm. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. This is the explanation, he says, of this that you're seeing and hearing. He goes back to David again. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, now he's going to quote from Psalm 110, which is the most commonly quoted psalm in all the New Testament. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Let's take a moment and pray. God, I ask that you would help us here in our little slice of the world, in this moment of time. We want to offer to you a heart of wisdom to count the days, the moments that you've given us, and here you've given us an Easter Sunday morning. So I pray that you would Help us to consider, to know, and to rejoice in the truth of the resurrection. God, give me a faithfulness, a steadfastness, a right kind of clarity of mind, more than that, a depth of passion to not yawn at or to just gloss over these great and glorious things. We hold forth to the world life through death. Help us to be clear. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Peter explained a riddle. My guess is that if you were in Jerusalem at the time, you would have said something like, Who? What? Where? And it makes me think, that Peter was a blessing to those who heard because he tried to explain. He says, this, this thing, here's what happened. So maybe the question for the morning would be something like this. What's the best riddle you've ever heard? Our family had a few years where riddles were sort of the, the commonplace conversation. Our kids would attempt to make them up. We bought a few riddles and joke books for long road trips. The boys really enjoyed it. And I suppose if you really, really asked, I enjoyed it as much, if not more. So, let me give you a couple of them. I was going to say, here's a few good riddles, but you're the judge of that, right? So, I won't, uh, I won't presume. <clears throat> here's a question for you. What can you put in a bucket to make it weigh less? A hole. That's the answer. A hole. A hole in the bucket makes it weigh less. You see that? It's a riddle. It's a question of who and a what? Ah, I see. Then you might ask this riddle. What is three-sevenths chicken, two-thirds cat, two-fourths 
Goat. Chicago. I mean, come on, right? This makes no sense. Three-sevenths chicken, two-thirds cat, two-fourths goat. What in the world? It would leave you utterly stumped looking around like, what? And then someone hands you the key. And I think it's that moment that Peter is after. He's, he's handing the key. Maybe riddles are small and simple, and we don't want to make today small or simple, so we think of it not only in riddles, but in full-on mysteries. Mysteries are all the rage these days. They're a wonderful storytelling technique. A couple of summers ago, I guess it was just last summer, I got into a, a few Agatha Christie stories. The recommendation of a friend I'm grateful to. And I'm reading these books, and because I know Agatha Christie and I know the story, the whole time, maybe you've been there, you sort of have a side eye while you're reading, which is a fun experience. You kind of read thinking like, I don't know what you're up to here. But the whole time I'm asking myself questions like this, oh, so who's this? Every time a character is introduced in a normal story, I might just have them walk in and just be like, well, hello, sir. You're boring and normal, but now I'm suspicious. Guy comes in, his name is Jim. I'm thinking to myself, if that is your real name. In other words, the whole time I'm wondering, who's this guy? Where's that gal? How do you explain that? That's odd. This is weird. I don't know. And then, of course, the story begins to really ramp up to the point where the circumstances are completely and utterly unrecognizable and unexplainable until a detective comes along. And there's some point in the story, this goes back to Sherlock Holmes and all the way up through Christie, who she was imitating in many ways. Perrault stands up and he gives an explanation. And the explanation always goes something like this. Well, we've all lived through quite a riddle. You're probably wondering X, Y, Z. And then in the midst of it, he says something like this. Well, clearly it was so and so because of this and that and then and there. And wow and what, with whom and how, here and therefore, everything makes sense. And if it's done well... And if your heart's been in the story, and if your mind's been asking the questions, if you've been longing for an answer, there comes a moment in time when through the pages of the book, you would say something like this, ah, I see. I get it. Oh, it makes sense now. What was once disconnected and completely unexplainable has now been explained. There's been an interpretive key offered. And what happens in this morning of Pentecost what happens on this day when the Spirit falls and Peter stands to play Perot? He explains the loose ends of the story concerning Jesus. He grabs odd circumstances and questions that are left unanswered. And the scripture tells us that some 3,000 people listening leaned in. And because of their longing to know, they said, Ah. I see. I get it. And what is put forth by Peter on this particular day is the reality that Jesus, and not just Jesus as a theoretical, or Jesus as a moral, or Jesus as a good person, any of those things, but Jesus in the flesh, living a righteous life that we could not live and we all know it, Jesus living a sinner's death that he did not deserve, but we did. And Jesus resurrected 
now ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father, that that Jesus is the explanation to the great riddles of life. Easter, as answer to the riddles of life, is the topic that Peter offers to anyone who would listen. And whoever has ears to listen, this has been the message of the church through the ages. In Acts chapter 2, let's just look again at some of the riddles. This is what Peter's trying to say. You've been wondering, now let me explain. Jesus is the answer, first of all, to the riddle of David. Did you notice there was a riddle of David? Twice Peter stands up and he says, hey, let me, how can I explain this? I know my friends look drunk, they're not. How can I explain this? And then twice he quotes from Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. Here's the riddle of David. If you need to be caught up on the history, some of Israel who would have been listening in would have wondered, where did we come from and where are we going and what are the promises that God's given to us? David was a soaring figure. figure of a, he was a champion of their, of their understanding of who they are. He was a man after God's own heart. He was brave and strong. He led armies. He was a king who had a promised throne forever. More than that, he was a psalmist who gave a songbook. Imagine someone who was handsome, good with women, strong, brave, a ruler, and an unbelievable musician, the best-selling artist in Israel's history. I'm trying to think of the person. It's like the Beatles and... Uh, who's a rapper that's appropriate? None of them. But it's, uh, or like a songwriter. Or like, imagine a songwriter and the best president ever. Like, all wrapped into one person. That's the way that Israel would have held David. So everyone loved David, and they knew that God was with them because of David, but there was a few things left undone. And Peter goes straight to the questions. He says, but riddle me this. How is it that that David, who we all know God was with, how is it that he prophesied and said that he would not see corruption. Acts 2, coming from Psalm 16, says, You will not let your Holy One see corruption. You have given to me the path of life. And then Peter says, rather than avoiding or sidestepping the question, he says, let me ask you the question and press it further. Who's dead today? Isn't that funny? The answer is Jesus is alive, but the question is, who's dead today? He does everything but exhume the body of David and say, does this make any sense to you? Don't we follow David? Was he being honest or truthful? It says in Psalm 16 that he would not see corruption. I'm pretty sure he's being eaten by worms right now. How is that possible? And those who are paying attention would say something like this, you know, that has been a riddle my whole life. I don't know. I love the Psalms. This is one of my favorite songs, but this lyric, I don't get it. How is it that David is not supposed to see corruption, but he's right there in a tomb with us to this day? And that's not the only riddle concerning David. He quotes then from Psalm 110, which again is the most commonly quoted psalm in the New Testament because it was one of the greatest riddles. David says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And here's the question that everyone asked. Who's the Lord? Who's Lord? Isn't David considered the Lord? He's the king. 
But who's the Lord and who's my Lord? And how does this work? In other words, what they wondered was, how could David be speaking of someone greater than him? And how is it that David's kingdom, the throne is supposed to have someone from David's line on it forever. And again, Peter doesn't sidestep the greatest questions of life. He doesn't say to Israel, don't worry about it. That's just details. In fact, he presses it even further. He says, "Uh, has anyone seen David's throne lately? How is it? Where where are the enemies? Are Are they under his feet like a footstool? Wasn't David not supposed to see corruption? Now he's in the tomb, being eaten. Who's his Lord? Have we ever answered that? And then also, um, aren't we supposed to have a king? And Peter says, I submit to you that the interpretive key to the answer to the riddle of David and his promises and all of the glory that comes through his line is in the person of Jesus Christ, born according to the flesh in the line of David who now has not been abandoned to Hades and has not seen corruption, but in fact was raised up because the loosened pangs of death could not hold him. And what he asks all of those who are there imagining and wanting answers is to imagine this, that Jesus Christ, him crucified and him arisen, him ascended and now sending the spirit in power, is the answer to the riddle of David. And more than that, now that we're on the topic of Jesus, Peter says, you know what? Actually, the crucifixion followed by a resurrection is the answer to the riddle of Jesus himself. A couple times in Acts chapter 2, he says, remember this Jesus whom you crucified? My guess is that many people had questions about the life and the person of Jesus. If you think about it, he would have been utterly unexplainable. Jesus was an obscure prophet from Nazareth. He was not trained properly as a rabbi, and yet he taught with such power that the scribes and the Pharisees often were completely stumped and would run away from him. He taught with such power and such an alluring presence that crowds followed him everywhere. He had a kind of power and grit mixed with such gentle mercy that it was otherworldly. Perhaps people had questions concerning Jesus about how was it that possible that he was able to work such miracles like this? That obscure prophet from Nazareth working miracles. And though we live on the other side of the Gospels and we've rejoiced in and received this Jesus, imagine being someone who had lived in this time and now in these weeks following his crucifixion and death, you hear all these rumors and you're beginning to wonder, what do we make of him? How do you explain his miracles? Imagine you're a fisherman and you're out on the boat. I don't know about some of you. Do some of you guys think when you're fishing? You just go out to fish and you're thinking. Maybe it's bike riding. Maybe it's in the car. Maybe it's whatever it is, but you're just thinking. And imagine you're out there and, uh, and you're fishing and you're thinking to yourself, I remember a couple of years ago. I remember a few years ago, I was walking to the market My wife sent me to go get some bread from the market and I I needed it and I was stressed out because my kids were in trouble with school and I I wanted to make sure that I could get there. And I remember I was walking along and I heard a little bit of a, a little bit of a brouhaha and people around shuffling and someone screaming out for this guy named Jesus. And it was a blind guy. 
There's a blind guy, and I remember he's been blind from birth, and then Jesus, I see him, he spits on the ground. I thought that was weird. And then he starts to make a bunch of mud, and the next thing I know, the guy who is blind is running around and can see. And then I knew that my wife would kill me if I wasn't home soon. So I just had to leave. I was just like, oh, I got to get the bread, and I just left. But now he's sitting out there on the boat. He's just thinking, what do we make of that guy? How is it that the ground and his spit all mixes together and proves these miracles? You see, there were questions. Imagine the thousands that interacted with Jesus and had no possible reason for the power with which he worked. Or think of those who were gathered at his death some weeks prior. You imagine that there were a few people who every once in a while when things got quiet and they were sitting around the fire at night. You know that moment in the conversation, even the best ones where it gets quiet? Someone told me that about every seven minutes there's a little bit of a moment where you either have to meet it with some kind of pressed forward conversation or just a little bit of a lull. You ever think there was a lull in the campfire? And somebody says, so remember when the sky went dark for the afternoon? You remember that? You ever figure out what the deal is? Somebody told me it was right when Jesus was being crucified. It just seems crazy. I remember the sky went dark. Anybody know what's up with that? Like asking about UFOs. Have we ever, have we ever solved that thing? Is it just a balloon? You think when the fire gets quiet and they're sitting around, they said things like this? I don't know. I don't know about the darkness thing, but I can tell you for sure. Uh, the ground was shaking. Anybody ever explain this? How is it that an obscure prophet from Nazareth, not properly trained, taught with such power? How is it the wind and the waves and disease and death itself seem to obey him? How is it that upon his death, the sky darkened and the ground shook. And how is it that the veil of the temple tore in two? And all of these questions that are swirling, Peter says, let me play Perot. You see, Jesus is the very son of God. He was divine being in flesh incarnate. And he worked in these ways and spoke in these ways. And he died in this way in order to bring about the forgiveness of sins. And death itself could not hold him. You see, the resurrection is the explanation for the life of Jesus. And rejoicing in and explaining new life from the grave is the best way to understand the influence and the person of Jesus. So what Peter would say is, if you want to know the riddle of David, you want to know the riddle of Jesus himself? Well, I submit to you, the resurrection is the answer. And then almost as, a, as an aside, he says, I also want to remind you that the best explanation for these odd and powerful occurrences happening here and now. How do we explain away a huddled mass of scared, inconsequential followers of Jesus becoming not less powerful following his death, but more so? How is it that so many of you now, upon listening to my explanation of the resurrection, burn in your hearts? How is it that so many of you longing for hope here in the person of Jesus, a path toward life? It is not drunkenness. 
but it is the power of God sent from on high because Jesus has inherited a throne that is forever. The throne of David has been filled. He is no longer seeing corruption, but offers life eternal. The answer to the riddle of the powerful rushing wind and the, the fire and the language is being spoken, the answer to this riddle, the interpretive key is Jesus resurrected from the dead. Peter asserts that the physical, and note how physical he makes it, he won't let them get away with any of this kind of sort of theoretical, spiritual kind of stuff. In spirit, he was never able to be killed. He kept saying things like he didn't see corruption, his body did not die, he was raised bodily. Peter asserts that the physical resurrection of Jesus is the answer to the greatest riddles of all of life, certainly those presented that day. And my firm belief is that the church of Jesus Christ has been, on, has been offering and answering the riddles of life in the same way down through the ages. Israel was offered the interpretive key to understand their history and their prophets. It was offered the interpretive key to understand Jesus and the, the movement that surrounded him. It was offered the interpretive key to, to explain the power and the odd burning in the moment that they felt. And Jesus, him physically, bodily resurrected, is still the answer to the great riddles that face us in life. You ever ask questions? You ever have the moment when you're fishing? Riding in your car? You think to yourself, you know, I can't explain it. I'm, I'm afraid of dying. I can't explain it. Grief is is present. I don't really get it. I don't know why we all feel like life should be the way that we are, but we experience the pain of death. You ever wonder why disease comes? You ever sit and just think to yourself, so is there a right and wrong? Why is it that sometimes I feel so justified and other times I feel so guilty? Why is it that that inbuilt morality cuts across civilizations and societies? You know what's a great riddle of life? That we live and move and deal with one another with our five senses, and yet most of us feel like the things that are the most important exist in a realm that is somehow outside of our reach and our senses. There is a sense of spirituality and depth in life that human beings can sense and know and cling to, that oftentimes cannot be explained. Ever think to yourself, is there a purpose to any of this? Is this going anywhere? You're going to get up tomorrow and file the reports? Going to put the food in the kid's mouth? Going to try to find some time for yourself? Going to laugh at a couple jokes? Go to sleep? Do it again and again and again and again. There are questions in life. You ever wish or wonder if someone's in charge? Does anyone have an answer for this? Uh, could we stop it? You ever think to yourself, is justice possible? 
Is there ever going to be a comeuppance for the evil in the world? You see, the answer given to these questions of life, Christianity is not a mere passing of time or a great social club. It is a reasoned response to the great riddles of all of life. And none of us are immune to asking these questions. There are times in my life, times in my life where these things hit and I say to myself, I'm going to go back and I'm going to reconstruct it. There's something rather than nothing. I'm a being with a sense and a morality. I long for life and I grieve over death. I know right and wrong and guilt and, and eventually I begin to rejoice. I rejoice that the church has held on to hope. That of all the people in all of the world, we still look around and we say, no matter what comes, I still believe a thing or two. I believe in the presence of God in those who are his image bearers. I believe that the earth was made good and will be redeemed one day. I believe that Jesus came and lived a righteous life that I should have been living, but I can't. I believe that Jesus died a sacrificial death, atoning to forgive my sins. I believe that the grave itself could not hold him. It was impossible to hold him because he's the author of life itself. I believe that it is not a small thing to look at someone who fears death in the midst of disease, who's grieving over the loss of a loved one, and to say there is hope and there is life through this death. And Easter Sunday morning, we, we just put a huge flag into the ground as a church across the world, year after year after year. And we look at one another deep in the eyes and we say, we still believe a thing or two, don't we? There's still hope in the world. Some early Christians, a few years later, are going to be encouraged by Peter himself. He stays on this theme. He says, you know what? I found myself at Pentecost having to give a reason for some hope to explain some odd occurrences. He's going to say later in 1 Peter chapter 3, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yeah, do it with gentleness and respect. Maybe you feel that. Maybe the world around you feels like this. You know what needs to be explained is hope. Seriously? You hope? Explain that. I read a very, very sad study recently. In a wide-ranging compilation of maladies in our culture in our day and age, there's a big title called Diseases of Despair. Things that lead to all kinds of Mental illness and unhealth, overeating and addiction, substance abuse, suicidal tendencies. And these diseases of despair in people under 35 have grown between 250 and 300 percent over the last number of years. It is a world that's screaming out and essentially saying, nobody's in charge, there's no justice, death is everywhere, is there any hope in the world? And Peter says, you should be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you. In other words, it's possible for us to hold out, to play Perot along with Peter and to say, do you wonder about the riddles of life? And to give them a key to understand the meaning and the hope that they can hold in a resurrected Christ. So when a world teaches you that pessimism is best, that you ought to really guard yourself and insulate with cynicism. 
In a world that shows you only death, death, death. In response, we answer, Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. And as for us, we declare that death does not win. Death is not the answer. Life is through our risen Lord and Christ. So today, I guess the simplest thing to say is believe with me. Let's believe together. Let's hold on together. Christ is risen.